Good morning, Liz. Good morning, Olivia. Today we have another episode. Welcome to Women, Magic, and Power. Hi, listeners. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Today we talk with Colby Cedar-Smith. This was a good conversation. I think everybody can enjoy this one. Colby is um, a local author. She's a poet. She's a artist in residence in several places. She's an arts educator. Um, she's a mystic. Um, her novel in verse is called Call Me Athena. It's about her grandmother's life growing up in Detroit during the Depression and also her great-grandparents in France and Greece, and it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. Everybody should read it or listen to it because you can listen to it on audiobooks as well. It's um, moving and in a way that I never thought poetry could tell a story. It was beautiful. It's very compelling, as is our conversation with Colby. So here we go. Enjoy. All right, here we go. Hi, Colby. Welcome to Women, Magic, and Power. Hi, I'm so happy to be here with you, too. We have um, lots of questions for you. We have your book. We both read your book, Call Me Athena. Everyone should read it. It's amazing. It's fantastic. Thank you. Um, But before we jump into that, we want to know a little bit about how you grew up and where you grew up and a little bit more about your family. Could you tell us more about that? Uh, I always say that I don't exactly have a place Um, I grew up in a pretty nomadic lifestyle at the very beginning of my life. I was born in Canada to two American parents who were absolute hippies, and um, they met in the Bay Area, San Francisco, in 1969. So I had a very creative, playful, wild, adventurous childhood. And um, we ended up spending some time in Utah, and so I spent a lot of time in the mountains of Utah, and um, then I spent a lot of my childhood in Minnesota living on a lake. Um, are <laughs> you the only child? I have a really, really lovely sister who's been my best friend throughout my life. Aww, that's so nice. <laughs> Sounds so magical. I, I have a, I, I, I'm super lucky and I have a very idyllic childhood and it has really given me the foundation for everything that I do. Yeah, I can see you surrounded by fairies while you're saying all this. Like, uh, right? So. <laughs> exactly. Um, were your p- grandparents around uh, through this? So, um, no, actually, my family, because we moved so much, um, was really quite independent. And, um, and then I would go every summer to stay with my grandmother, Mary, who the book is about. And um, my sister and I would travel alone to be with her. And so we would have hours and hours and hours sitting, shelling peas, peeling peaches for pie, um, where she would just tell me the same stories over and over again. And I, um, there's something absolutely like integral to me, which is that I love listening to stories. And mm. so some kids would be... Um, bored or not lean into that process with their grandmother like oh she's telling the same story again Mm. but I wanted everything I wanted to hear all the details I wanted her to go deeper every single time I sat at her feet and I was just a sponge I just wanted everything 
I love that. Where was she living when you visited her in the summers? So she grew up in Detroit, Michigan, and um, then my dad grew up in Detroit, Michigan, and then um, they moved to Fort Wayne, Indiana. So it was this little town in Indiana and 100% Midwest. Okay. (laughs) So I'm not joking when I say shucking peas. (laughs) Did you... um... Always feel inclined to like writing poetry, even when you were that age? When did you start writing? Um, So because I had this childhood at a lake surrounded by nature, um, I feel like there has always been something very um, bizarre about me, which is that I, it's not, it's not unusual. Other people have this, but I love staring at things and looking at patterns and um Mm. so I can stare for an hour looking at ants marching across the dirt or waves rippling on water or listening to the sound of birds and there's something very integral to being a poet that takes that skill and the noticing of things and the questioning and the layering of things. And so because I had all of this nature at my fingertips, I, I noticed early on that that was something that not everyone did. Um, and there's a, there's a funny actually story that my mom tells all the time, which is that, um, I announced to them that I was going to be a poet when I was eight. And the story is, um, I woke up in the middle of the night and I snuck out of my house and I went down and the lake is like not there. You have to like go through trees and like you have to, Mm -hmm. you know, so I, you go down a hill and you've got this eight year old going to water by themselves. It's dangerous. We Mm -hmm. don't, we do not, you know, want children to do this. (laughs) So I, I wandered out into the middle of the night and I laid down on the grass And, um, I felt like I could feel like I was a, I could feel my body on the globe and I felt like I was so tiny and I could feel the entire earth rotate and I was watching movement and starlight and moonlight and I felt Not like I was separate, but that there was an osmosis between me and the world and that it was my job to describe this. (laughs) And so I walked up to um, my parents' room and it was like five o'clock in the morning and I was covered (laughs) in wet dew and mud and (laughs) I got into bed with them and I circled my arms around their neck and I said, Mom, Dad, I'm a poet. (laughs) And my mom loves to tell this story because I, there's always been a part of me that's like, I'm a, I'm a dreamer, I'm a storyteller, I'm a weaver of sorts. And there's like, um, if I'm not doing that, I'm not happy. And so, you know, there were so many parts of my life where it was like, this is not the time to do this. This is not the time to do this. But I've just like, I've just done it and fought so hard to like make this my life and because I know it's my life (laughs) and we certainly don't um live in a time and place necessarily where you know it's easy to say 
I'm a poet and that's what I'm going to do with my life. Right. No. And the um, process of like, um, it, it's, it's interesting cause I was eight, more able to do that at eight than I was at 25. I believe sure. that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and yet and, like the whole experience was so powerful. Yes. Right. Like yes. we would be lucky to have that experience as adults. Yeah, for sure. And this, this image that you just created of, Feeling this deep connection and then feeling like it's your calling to mm. describe that connection. Mm-hmm. That's incredibly powerful. It feels, um, when it's happening, it feels so, so, uh, it feels like my whole entire body lights up with lightning. Mm. Like it's, uh, it's almost like, um, Affirming. Yes, it is. And it's like this golden thread to something else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the connection to everything, right? It is. And I think, you know, whether... So I am uh, not... um, I'm not a churchgoer, but I'm very spiritual. And I'm married to an atheist scientist. Atheist with a capital A. (laughs) And so... um, yeah, this, we have a lot of good conversations in our house, but this, uh, fact that I, if I listen, I have to listen very deeply to do my work and I have to have time and a place to open myself up to that connection because it is, poetry is, is all connection to me. It's this layering of time, it's patterning, it's, um, finding these different things that, create more meaning when they're put together Mm. you are a weaver you said it (laughs) right i am i swear (laughs) so how did you get from that eight-year-old to that 25 year old and then beyond and integrate this into your life So I studied, um, I mean, you know, I was a normal high school student. I played soccer. I, um, always felt myself to be quite odd. I had a couple of very close friends. I was not, I was considered odd. And so, um, I never felt like anyone truly other than my best friend got me, you know, Mm -hmm. I always felt very much like a stranger in a strange land, Mm. if you will. Um, When I got to college, I met my husband, and that was an amazing connection and felt like a spiritual union as well. And he's been my partner for 20-some years now. So, um, But I then... So I studied creative writing when I was in college. Mm -hmm. And I was, I never felt like I was truly seen by any of my professors. I had a a really good working relationship with one professor named David Mason, who was extremely encouraging, but it was more on my work as an academic or an editor. Sure. Um, And I didn't, I, I didn't feel like the work that I was writing was coming from that big place that I knew it could come from. Because I think I was being taught to write very intellectual poems and, you know, all of the examples that we were being given were, um, you know, quite intellectual, all male, mainly white. Um, And I think that there was 
a part of me that was like yearning for these really powerful female voices like Sylvia Plath and and I was told that they were confessional poets and that was wrong and you should never write from about your mothering you should never write about your womanhood you should never write about your like so it was oh um, that all of that was considered <laughs> to not be worthwhile and so which is which is I don't even know if they th- they knew that they were doing that, but that's mm-hmm. what was happening mm-hmm. in my brain. And I had a magical female professor, her name was Joan Stone, who taught this poetry class in um, this like super fluid way. And I felt like she had fl- fairies floating around her. And somehow to even like breathe the same air as her made me a better poet. Um, and so that combination of like, you know, being held as an intellectual and helped and also being inspired to be a woman poet, that was amazing. Then, um, we went to Boston, uh, because Blair was doing graduate work and, um, I was so lost. Like I thought Mm. I was going to work in the publishing industry, I was like, I wanted to immediately go into this job editing poetry, and those jobs don't exist really for anyone. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I ended up getting a great job at the Berkeley College of Music, um, but it was like in a communications office, and I was doing editorial work and a lot of like print publication management. And I was like, this isn't my calling this isn't my soul expressing itself Mm. and I think that's you know like it's hard for a 20 year old like you have to pay your bills you know like you you don't get to like always follow your your heart's desire um so there were a lot of like just like scraping by years where I was like trudging along um and then but it sounds like throughout it you were able to keep in touch with that part of you that you were like but I know that this is the way I was. I was constantly writing, but I was never I was not submitting poetry. That was like not something that was that I thought. It was almost like a s- spiritual fire and fuel versus um what I was doing for a living. Mm-hmm. A work outlet, yeah. So I ended up um you know, I ended up leaving the Berkeley job and 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 like through a whole bunch of different things. I I did some travel writing for Lonely Planet and I did all sorts of different jobs and I was kind of a freelance employer employee. And then I uh, started working for the best bookstore in Boston called Wordsworth Books, which doesn't exist anymore. And I could cry for years about it, but Mm. um, I started as a bookseller and very quickly they turned me into the community relations person who coordinated um all the author events and it was an insanely magical time and experience for me and I um you know ran book events for Toni Morrison and like Garrison Keillor I met Hillary Clinton I um um one of the most insanely special moments in my life was sitting chatting with Isabel Allende for like a half an hour where she like held my hands and taught me how to be a novelist And I, so I, I had these, I just would watch them. I was watching like who they were in the world as writers of books. And I was like, that's it. That's me. I want this. I want this so bad. And I, um, and then, you know, I went to 
I thought I was going to go get an MFA and I applied and I applied and I applied and I kept on getting rejected from MFA programs and um, nobody wanted what I was, what I was doing. And, um, you know, there's a lot of like, probably still some like real, like heavy rejection that like is in my heart all the time from a lot of the rejection you receive as a writer. But I always kind of feel like I have to like beat that dragon back constantly. And, um, yeah, well, you're putting yourself (laughs) out there and it's so personal, right? Like all the time. So yeah, it's, it's logical that that especially when it's stuff that's coming from this very deep connected place. Yes. Right. Yes. And that, um, so, so I ended up going to graduate school, uh, in, and getting a degree in arts and education, which I've, I felt like it was such an amazing, um, I don't, I, I think I, I have this part of myself that's a writer, but the part that is really amazing to me is how art builds community and connection. Mm-hmm. And, um, and as soon as I like started to realize that I could do that in really interesting, different ways than just being a teacher in an elementary school or being a teacher in a high school, um, that I started to think about myself as a teaching artist. And, and mm. that's how I think about myself today. Yeah. So I did that. And then we moved to um, Geneva, Switzerland. And, uh, I had a baby. And so we, I was kind of like on the road following my husband's academic career all the while writing. Um, and at that point I was probably, I had submitted a poem here or there. I'd gotten like one poem published, but I started to, um, yeah, there's like 10 stories that could be told, but it, uh, I ended up having a, um, pretty traumatic moment when Phoebe was born. She was um, four weeks old and we were crossing the street and my mom was carrying her and uh, she fell with Phoebe. And Phoebe had um, head trauma. She had two skull fractures. We were, um, you know, uh, taken from the Princeton Hospital in an ambulance to CHOP doctors and nurses came to get her from CHOP and escort us. Um, We had like 30 hours where I wasn't, they couldn't tell me that she was going to be okay, whether she was like um, going to have brain damage. They didn't know for like a whole bunch of hours whether she had brain bleeding, like they didn't know what was happening. And so um, oh, Colby, that is terrible. It's so Sorry. terrible. And yes. the fact that I can like talk about it now is like so, uh, so calmly is very different than the way that I would have talked about it. She's 11 and she's perfect. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, clearly I, that helps, yeah. right? It helps. Um, so I was breastfeeding at the time and I wasn't able to feed her and I was like just grieving. I was grieving so much and I was like, um, they had me pump all this breast milk and I don't know if you like, uh, when you're having a very, your breast milk production goes way up. And so, um, so they, yeah, they got her out of the, the, we got out of the hospital, but still they told us like, uh, we don't know 
we're going to have to wait basically until she talks and walks. Yeah, three years. Good know. luck. It oh, is three years, honestly. My goodness. And there was a moment when she was three and she read, she was like talking and she like read her first word. And I had an amazing doctor who followed us the entire time. And at that point, she looked me in the eye and she was like, you can stop worrying. Yeah. So it was really intense. So anyway, the breast milk uh, <clears throat> is, I, I came out of the hospital and there was a call in the neighborhood for twins that had lost their mother in labor. And I was able to take like all of this pain and all of this like frustration and love for my child and give it to feed other children in our community, yeah, that's which is crazy. So anyway, uh, the, yeah, we, we got out of that experience and this whole entire year afterwards was me basically like processing what had happened. And I honestly can't remember that year very well, but I made a book and that book has never been published. It's called a year of salt. And, but that, mm, that's a good name. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that book did really magnificent things for me as a writer. It taught me that I could write about my body, the body of the people around me. It taught that I could write about my mothering. It taught me that I could express anger and desire and pain and transform it into something beautiful. And, um, so it ended up like, although it's not published, it ended up doing very well. And it got like 20, it was a finalist for like 20 book prizes. And so all throughout that entire time of me, you know, trying these things and I got many of the poems in the book published, I was like, Oh, maybe this is, maybe I am doing this as a living. Maybe I can (laughs) do this. But I was still, you know, concentrating on being a mom. And uh, and then after it was never published, I was like, well, maybe I can't do this. <laughs> maybe maybe I can't. <laughs> and, um, like, it's a beautiful way to process all that pain, right? Like, and to reconnect yes. you with kind of, like, give you a push, right, to yes. what you originally wanted, which is who you are. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, hey, you've lost your eye, like you lost, you lost sight of the goal. Yes. You know, the way to process this terrible accident is to like reconnect with yourself, right? And then grow from there. And in a way, this book, Call Me Athena, is also built on that too, because um, there was a, another moment, I'll tell another, like, I'll try to keep it brief, but the there was another moment where Phoebe... Um, had scarlet fever. <laughs> if no you way. read the book, oh yeah. my goodness. a child in my family passed from scarlet fever. My grandmother lost her twin. So, um, so the reason why I was called to write this is because we had a night where Phoebe had, a, and you know, this, this, you know, trauma triggers trauma, triggers trauma. So when you have the, sure. another experience, it like inflames a lot of the emotion so the so we had a night uh, where you know she had a hundred and four degree fever, it, like it went up in a forty five or probably like even fifteen minute moment, and um, I called the doctor in the middle of the night. The doctor was like, "Okay, we're gonna you know get 
you prepped, we're, we're expecting you, like we were talking about going to the hospital. And during that moment, she was hallucinating that a train full of children was coming to get her and then it was snowing in her room. And I was like, don't no. get oh. on the train. No. Don't get on the train. No. And so I had this... Um, so my body feels like right even at this moment, like uh, I can feel it on every edge of my skin. I had a moment where I felt like my great-grandmother, Jeanette, was with me in the room. And there was this, like, she was just... Like, for any mother who has ever lost a child, for any mother who has ever feared for losing their child, for any mother who has sat up all night long with a child, you know, at their breast. Like this is, it's such a, um, harrowing feeling. And I felt like she, she had been through this and she was giving me strength. And so we came out of it. Phoebe was fine. She, we live in a time of antibiotics. She Mm -hmm. got a shot in her arm. Everything was okay. Mm -hmm. And then I came out of that wondering like, why am I the woman in our family who gets to walk away with her child? And my great grandmother wasn't. Mm. Yeah. So the, for me, all of the sudden there was like, oh, this is what it's about. This is why I wrote A Year of Salt. This is why I'm called to write this story, because it's about the fact that we carry intergenerational trauma. A hundred percent. And because we cannot deny the fact that in our even our basic cellular structure, even in our breath, it's like the not only the stories, but the body. Oh, they yeah. I mean, it's it. proven, right? It's like, proven. right now it's science. Yeah. Like, did your grandmother talk about her twin sister? She did. But, you know, that's the, that's the one major thing that I, sh- I um, changed in the book. She actually lost her twin when they were much younger. And I actually made them older in the book. And there was the, there's a really interesting thing about um, I... So this book is based on my family members, but it's also a novel. Sure. So I, one of the things that I really struggled with is, um, is, am I, what, what, what story should I tell? What serves the book? What serves my family? Is it okay to like, uh, I don't know. I could tell a lot of stories about this. So the, the answer is yes. It was a humongous thing for my grandmother that she lost her twin. And I had a sister. And so all throughout our lives, as I said earlier, I had this lovely relationship with my sister. And all throughout our lives, she would just be like, you're so lucky you have your sister. I think that Call Me Athena, in a way, um, helps the entire family heal, even your grandmother Mm -hmm. on, you know, lots of levels, because shedding light into the issue from a more healing and loving place instead of just like the hurting and the loss. And there was a lot of like, one of the questions for me is like my great grandparents, Jean and Yargis, they were hard people. They were tough. 
They mm-hmm. were war-torn. Mm-hmm. They had humongous expectations for their family, for their children, for their grandkids. Um, they These expectations were broken over and over again mm-hmm. by my grandmother. And uh, there was anger and um, there was addiction and there was violence. And yeah. so, like, there is uh, there is healing to be done there. Mm -hmm. And so even in the act of making her twin older, I, I actually had a dream and dreams are something that come up for me a lot in my life, but the, and a lot of my writing is based on that, but where Marguerite actually came to me as a 16 year old and she asked me if she could have some more years. (laughs) And then I was like, oh shit, I could get, oh shoot, I can, sorry guys, Um, (laughs) I could give them some time. I could actually like, they could have time together. And anyone who's lost a family member knows that you want time with them. So, um, but you know, there's, there's so much to be said actually about, Worrying that I wasn't doing their story justice because as a novelist, you know, if you're ever going to get a book published, it has to have this story arc. It has Mm -hmm. to have resolution. It has to have all of these threads because I'm a weaver, has to have all of these threads that, that interweave and then there is an enlightening moment that comes out of those things. So actually when I first started to write the book, I um I knew basics about the story which were um at least my great grandparents story. I knew a lot about my grandmother cuz she had talked about her experiences, but I didn't sure. know all that much about the um Greek and French moments. And so what I had heard was he was a soldier. Um actually I had heard that my grandmother my great grandmother was from Brest. And, um, and I knew that they had come on this big ship and I knew that they went through Ellis Island and I knew he was, uh, um, you know, had been a naturalized citizen because he had fought in the war on the American, you know, side. And so, um, but I had to fill in a lot. And so I was like a crazy woman, just like wandering around my yard, like looking at butterflies and like looking at what trees were showing or what birds were showing up in my yard that day. And I was like, what, what am I supposed to do? How am I? And I just kept on getting all of these movies playing in my mind I just kept on getting like all these images and all of this like I could hear the dialogue I could hear I could feel the feelings and um and I was like okay stop fighting against yourself Mm -hmm. not knowing if you're telling the right story but just tell the story that's coming to you yeah Mm-hmm. And so I just wrote, I just wrote, I wrote, she was a nurse. I, I, I felt very strongly that like the story should take place in San Malo because it's like this incredible town. I, uh, I wrote that oh, I knew she, I knew Jean had worked in a convent, um, or had, had been a novice nun in a convent, but I didn't understand 
how they had met in this place. So I had written the first draft of the book and Blair had a conference in Paris and my parents decided to come with us and we were in an apartment in Paris and I had given my dad the first draft of the book and I was asking this question, like, do I have permission to tell the story as it come as it coming as it is coming to me because this is your dad's family. this is my dad's family so so I wanted his buy-in I wanted his permission and he was like oh my god this isn't you know like I this is exactly how I want this to be told this is incredible this is amazing it's like filling in all the things but he has a great aunt um, named Lee and so he was like oh I'll just like email Aunt Lee from Paris and I'll ask her for more details so you can put them in the book and I remember this exact moment where uh, we were sitting at the table in this apartment in Paris, and my dad received an email back to um, from Aunt Lee, and it said, oh, she wasn't from Brest. She was from San Malo. Huh. No. <laughs> and she was in a convent, but she was a nurse, which we didn't, like, fully know. Amazing. And they met when he had, I, we didn't know he was injured and she had helped him and the hospital and they met in this hospital, you know, like And for him. everyone out there, you need to read this book because it's amazing how you weave all these stories. And I, I feel like I know your great grandparents because of it. It's beautiful. And I swear to God, there was this moment. Thank you. Thank you for that. I swear to God, there was this moment where like there was silence and my dad was like, who are you? I'm a witch. <laughs> like, I don't yes. know that. Well, so in, in the book, right, um, Joan of Arc, mm-hmm. right? So she appears in a couple different places, right? And there's this idea and this line about listening to the voices, mm-hmm. right? And I feel like that applies just as much to you and this experience, it right? Does. You listened to the voices it it does and you know for I have a lot of I have a lot of questions and not a lot of answers about where this comes from and the more that I just listen and I get out of my own way the more I can do the work that I'm supposed to do Mm -hmm. um and it's all, all the work is for healing, for connection, for community mm-hmm. building and for family love. And also it touches me so much when people read the book and identify it. And no matter what culture they come from or what experience their family has had, they are then inspired to go talk to their family and get more stories Mm -hmm. you know like this reminds me of this oh i'm gonna have to ask my mom about that so i mean this is an obvious question but would you say that then writing is your connection with the divine um 100 and it has to do with um listening to the voices you Mm know it's um for me, there's this like capturing of starlight. Is that the way to say mm, it? Sure. It's light and it's 
sound and its visuals and its and I feel so loved when I can do it, when I can get out of my own way. I would say... When um, you're transcending. It sounds exactly like a medium would describe what they do. And I, 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 I'm, um, I have a hard time calling myself a medium, but I, I do feel like I don't remember writing a lot of that book. Yeah. I don't, um, I remember editing the hell out of that book, (laughs) but the really like powerful scenes, the emotions, the, like the depth of that book comes from someplace else than my physical body. Mm. And, um, and you know, as I go further along and write other books and, and I can tell when it's happening or not happening. And so there are moments where I'm like, this is not the day. Uh This isn't going to happen today. Mm -hmm. But the more I can like put myself in nature, the more that I can um, give myself the meditative time that it needs to like clear the vessel Mm -hmm. and open the container for what is going to be poured in. And if in a way it gives me this glorious permission to not take too much ownership on the work and not feel shame about the work and not feel um, angry at myself when I can't work because Mm. it's like a relationship. It's a relationship. The ability to quiet down your brain because of mm. what you were saying earlier, the mm-hmm. watching the patterns. Mm-hmm. I feel like that skill that you had when you were eight is what allows you to go outside nowadays and look at the birds and find mm-hmm. in the patterns that kind of like shuts down mm. every other thought coming in there, right? I would think that that's kind of, obviously it is mindfulness and meditation. It's that a meditative allows it. state for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. The other thing is it this experience in that, hotel in Paris where I had something concrete that gave me proof, if you will, Mm -hmm. that gave me this, like, this is your God given gift. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I don't, I I don't want to like sound like I'm gifted. I'm not, but I, if I don't respond to this gift that I am being given, it creates separation in my heart. Yeah, sure. And so I, to have to have my family see that, to have my scientific husband see that, yeah. to have, then we can understand my work a little bit better. Together. And you can be whole. Yes, with mm-hmm. them because I feel like I've been floating in this world for years and years. I'm 45. This is my first book. I'm not like a you know. 19-year-old debut novelist. Like, I've been searching for how to do this for a long time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think because I was trying to write these heady poems and I was in my way, it wasn't working. But I can say, like, that eight-year-old part that you brought up again, Olivia, is, like, I remember very distinctly 
realizing that I could see the layering of time. Like uh, the concept of a palimpsest of like art on top of art on top of art and you peel it back and you can see all of the layers and I can feel all of the layers and I can see them and I can see the people in the layers and I remember going when I was a kid and we you know would travel around in the car always in the car on road trips and we were in Minnesota at this time period and so we drove to Montana and we went to the site of the Battle of Little Bighorn. And, you know, it's a field and there's lots of, like, um, posters up and, like, lots of information about what is happening and in this situation. But I stared at the field and started weeping. And I wasn't seeing soldiers and men on horseback, I was seeing a, <laughs> so like, <laughs> go ahead, let it out, let yeah. it out. I just saw one woman, you know, Yeah. and she was walking and she was holding a baby and I could feel the like mud. Mm. And the blood. Yeah. <laughs> and how it made her feet heavier. And I could just feel how hard it was to carry this baby from one point to another yeah. through this. <laughs> and I came away and I told my mom that and she was like, whoa, what are you, like, what... And so my real questions about this are, what is that? (laughs) (laughs) Is that a ghost? Is that dust? Is that a memory? Is that um, an ancestor? Is that a heart-to-heart connection between women. Is that, uh, like, the empathy inside me? Is that my creative imagination? Is that a scientific part of my chemistry? Is this God? It, it, shows, <laughs> it shows that you're married to a scientific guy because um, you are analyzing this from every possible <laughs> angle. Um My answer (laughs) is uh, that is your ability to see beyond. For me, it's almost like whenever, and this this comes up a lot because I see a lot of these things, but like I often I'm just like, I see you. Yes. Mm -hmm. I see you. And I'll I'll tell this again or I'll tell this story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that takes me right to this place in your book. Um. Where Mary's in school and her teacher is speaking to the class and the teacher, she stands in front of the class, hands clasped, her hands clasped under her chin. Wonder spreads across her face as she says, we are proud of our city and our brothers and fathers who have built the foundation of our modern nation. 
And then Mary thinks, yes, we are proud of our brothers and our fathers. But what I want to ask, what about our sisters and our mothers who carry generations in their wombs, who rise and feed us, clothe us and tend us, who birth each day into being? (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, right. It's, yeah. All the women who need to feel seen. Mm-hmm. So I could say so many things, but my the book that I'm writing right now is actually about a, a woman who lived in Venice in the 1600s and was a musician and a revolutionary musician. And because it was Venice in the 1600s, life, mm-hmm. life was tough. And I've been, whenever you're writing a book, you need to like have the crux of the book. Like, why are you writing this? What's the meaning of this? What's the, why, why does this book need to exist in the world? And it's so interesting that you pulled out that poem for me to teach me right now that the reason why I think, and I've been thinking about this a lot, is I want to write this next book is because women need other women to tell their stories. Mm-hmm. And, and you we, just got your answer. We just need, yeah. we need so, um, so deeply to tell the stories of, of women who have not had voice. We are the voice. We are the mouthpiece for all of these generations. And, um, and the, the new book is really about body and ownership of, uh, you know, like, sexual desire and creativity and how that has been held down and not owned by the women themselves. Mm -hmm. And, and this needs to be told to this generation. Mm -hmm. This need, these stories don't disappear. They help us tell our own stories. They help us move forward to be the bravest and most bold people we can be. Mm -hmm. I agree. Uh, plus, like, the only way to get things to move forward is talking about them and making them normal. Right. right? It's clearing the yeah. space. Yeah. <laughs> it's clearing the... Well, so then, to that point, do you think that you're the most powerful when you're telling these stories? Power is such a horrible word. Uh, <laughs> and this is something that we have wrestled uh, with with almost all of our guests, right? Really it's really interesting, isn't it? We are so hesitant to call ourselves power, right? Because we've been conditioned to Mm. think that power is destructive and oppressive Mm. and all of these things. But, Mm. right, power is when we birth each day into being, right? Mm. Power is creation. Power is our voice. Power is all these things. But Mm. we are just taught not to Mm. think that way. And so... I feel think about your power. I feel most powerful when I can open the connection to the divine, to my ancestors, to my child sitting before me who needs to be seen, to opening myself up to a great and grand vulnerable love, mm. to teaching my students not to be the kind of writer that I am, but to see the kind of writer they are Mm. and to help them be better in themselves, to be more themselves. And all of this is connection. 
all of this is big light and love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's power in love. Mm-hmm. And connection. Mm-hmm. And ancestors. So, um, so my mother texted me this morning to tell me that... Um, but today, seven years ago, is the anniversary of when my grandmother passed. Mm. And and we're here telling these stories about grandmother. Right? And the, that was all I could think about. And I lost both grandmothers within 24 hours of each other. And my father's mother was a very hard woman in a million ways. And when I was a kid, I found it hard to connect with her. And then I realized, you know, as I grew up, like, she left how she left home at 12. She worked her entire life. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, so I was lucky to have these people in my life for so long. And how did you, what do you feel like helped you process that? Because um, for me, it's poetry. <laughs> yeah. Um, my children, I mm-hmm. think. I think, um, you know, just connecting with the next generation making sure that I was staying connected with all the other parts of my family that were still around, right? right. And telling and, the stories, I feel. I feel like you've the told stories. their stories. That's something that we, like, collectively at hu- as humans probably used to have more of when we, when it was, when our culture was oral, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the stories would just get passed down from yeah. generation to generation mm-hmm the myths and the legends and the just mm. all the different kinds of stories. Mm-hmm. And we don't have that in the same way. Well, but you're listening to the ancestors and telling their stories, and that's amazing. Well, and, and you're a poet, which, you know, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of you out there. So. <laughs> there's not. And I think that's why, you know, this is my videos of them taking. It's like it, yeah. to have this object that I really wrote for my children and for my four nieces and nephews and, you know, for us to hopefully, and this is like my greatest hope is that, that all of the family who are talked about in this book would be proud of it, mm-hmm. you know, proud of the success that it's had because it's their story. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it was it's me and the that. divine who did it, but it's mm-hmm. their story. It and um, but that's why I think it's so wonderful because it does resonate with a lot of us, right? There mm-hmm. is like the First World War, all all of that impacted a lot more well, generations, right? Mm-hmm. So we all can see a piece of our history in it. I think that's why it's yeah. so moving and mm-hmm. so wonderful, right? There is that part of the grandparents that are tough and had to leave their house when they were 12. And there is the part of someone who lost someone that they loved or lost a daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we are women who have voices. So mm-hmm. we must use them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say this. If there's one thing that we've noted so far um, through the podcast, getting out there, and it's only been published like four episodes so far, and the amount of um, people that reached out to us and say, oh, I know a woman that you should interview. I know so-and-so. And so the beauty for me is it's the women in your community that are making a difference in people's lives. And that is who people are listening to the episodes and saying, oh, that reminds me of so-and-so. And then you get to, you know, value each other. Uh, we'll allow that. If we achieve that, people, you know... Mm-hmm. 
recognizing the amazing women in their lives, then we're already winning, Liz. Good job. Score. <laughs> we're all winning. Um, <laughs> okay, so Colby, so you talked about when you were eight and you had this, you know, sort of revelatory divine experience. And another thing that we have noticed with almost all the women that we have spoken with is when they look back and they sort of think about their first connection with the divine, it seems to come around the age of eight or nine. Really? Yes. Huh. Yes. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. And so, and, you know, Olivia and I both have daughters that are nine. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you were to talk to the little women, what would you tell them? Well, I think one is the biggest thing... (laughs) And probably the simplest thing, but the hardest thing at the same time. Mm, that's always the way. Is to find joy. Mm. And I think that it's hard for us as women to acknowledge our joy and give ourselves space for joy. Um, and I want this generation to be able to find joy, to seek it out, to lean into joy. The other thing that I would say that's really helped me as a writer or a human being is create something in the world that you need and then others will need it too. Mm. And this book was something I really needed to process the the death of my grandmother. You know, she had Alzheimer's and we struggled with it for a really long time. And this was the way that I could bring her memories back. Mm -hmm. She lost them and I'm bringing them back. So whatever they become, these women that we're raising, you know, scientists or uh, writers or, you know, I don't know. What what will they be? It's so amazing. But whatever they do, create something that the world needs, that they personally need. It's, I think it's so powerful to be able to know to find what we can give the world and share it with others. That's true. That That's is fantastic. Powerful. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Colby. So I think Colby has a poem that she wants to end with. I would love to read a poem. Oh, yes, please. Yeah. This is, um, I was thinking about reading a poem today, and, and I was thinking about this um, women telling the story of women and um, also the role of ancestors and and the role of spirit in our lives, and this is the one that I chose. Can't wait. Let us stay here. Let us stay here under the pictures of our grandmother laughing. The priest sits in the corner smiling as the children circle the embroidered purple altar four times, the mother of Jesus framed in a golden circle, light streams in through the colored glass. The way home is lit by street lamps. The wooden house smells of baked bread and herbs. And the the low sun bounces off the river like a ball on a trampoline. The crickets outside rub their legs together in song. We lose ourselves in sleep and don't know which house we are in, home. We love each other and the night 
loves us back. O swaying hammock of stars, we pray, let us get up in the morning and count the bones that are still here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Govi. This was fantastic. Thanks for having me. People, this is it. The last episode of the season is coming, so tune in next week when we talk to the little women. Don't forget, you can catch up with all of our episodes on any podcast platform. Thanks for listening.